electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I am Brian Sullivan, and tonight, yay or nay on AI, which companies are the real deal versus smoke and mirrors? Breaking developments on Jamie Dimon. We're learning what he said under oath about the bank's ties to Jeffrey Epstein. The boycott squeeze intensifying on shares of AB InBev. Uninsurable California, state's biggest home insurance provider, slamming the door on new customers. But is the state itself to blame? And remember, the House... It always wins. Nevada casinos stacking the odds even more against players. We're going to show you how. All that and much more in the next 59 or so minutes. Belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. All right, good evening here, good afternoon out west. We're going to get to all those stories shortly, but first up on Last Call, you saw the animation, breaking news, the potential debt ceiling deal, facing another critical hurdle. In just about 90 minutes, the House will decide the fate of the bill that raises the $31.4 trillion debt limit until 2025. This all comes as the nation nears next week's theoretical default deadline. Kayla Tausche, live in Washington, with what we know ahead of that critical vote. Caleb. Well, Brian, members of the House of Representatives are set to gather to debate the bill, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, as it's called, in just a few minutes. It's strategic timing because it represents 72 hours since the text of the bill was first posted. Earlier today, lawmakers passing a rule allowing the debt ceiling deal to be voted on. That passed 241 to 187, with Democrats holding back until the very final moments and then all voting in a pack. That vote signaling there will be enough support to pass the deal itself. Now, the next hurdle will be the Senate. Earlier today, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he'd try to pass it by the end of the week. I can tell you what I hope happens is that those who have amendments, if given votes, will yield back time so that we can uh, finish this uh, Thursday or Friday and soothe the country and soothe the markets. But it's not clear those members would give back that time. Some have vowed to slow the process. For instance, Mike Lee, a Utah Republican, being one of them. Tonight, he called the bill a farce and a collusion. He called it a deal from hell. Rand Paul has said he'll offer a conservative alternative. And Bernie Sanders has also said he'd oppose the bill. All of that opposition could delay a vote until the weekend. Tonight, President Biden declined to weigh in on the outlook for the deal on the Hill, saying that the vote hadn't closed and the White House has remained optimistic thus far, Brian. All right, Kayla Tausche, we might, we might see you in the, the next hour. We'll see. Kayla, thank you. All right, for more on the critical vote on Capitol Hill and what it could mean to your money and investments, as well as the political side of the story, CIC Wealth Executive VP and Financial Advisor Malcolm Etheridge, former Democratic Senator of North Dakota, Heidi Hadkamp, 
and former governor of Ohio, John Kasich. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, first off, Governor Kasich, uh, what's your take on this deal? You're probably not a fan of either side of it. Nobody seems to be it. But should we get some hope as a nation that at least there theoretically was some kind of a deal that was even able yeah. to be reached? Well, I mean, it's yeah, of course, it, it's OK. And what what I'm excited about or I shouldn't I shouldn't say excited, but hopeful about is maybe you're going to see a little bit of a coalition of both Republicans and Democrats who are basically in the middle. I mean, the losers tonight are the extreme on the right and extreme on the left. Maybe you can have a group of people that can get serious about our financial problems in this country because they are serious. And this deal is far from transformational, but thank goodness it's going to get done. And uh, but we've got a long, long way to go, Brian, and it's going to require both Republicans and Democrats and people in this country to understand the, the situation we find ourselves in and then to move to make changes to create a 21st century uh, federal government. Yeah, I mean, Senator Heitkamp, would you agree with that? If, if sort of the far right is upset and the far left is upset, maybe, maybe, maybe it's the right answer. <laughs> well, it definitely is. a It's compromise on both sides. I think it's modest. I think the governor said it was modest. Um, but I think it also tells you that no one wanted to in any way threaten the debt limit. And um, that would have had huge ramifications for balance sheets. It would have been a very bad look for both sides. And so I think what's interesting is when you look at the House vote, there's only 20 vote difference between the number of Democrats and the number of Republicans. If people are looking for consensus in this country, people to get along and get a deal done, I think this is a good day for the Congress and a good day for America. Does it solve all the problems? Absolutely not. But it gets us over this crisis and this hurdle. Yeah. And Malcolm, you know, listen, your job is to manage your client's money, be a good steward of that capital. I guess you've got two outlooks here, right? If, if the debt deal passes or if the debt deal does it, what's your take on the money side on either flip of that coin? Well, I would say the markets probably agree more with Senator Heitkamp in the sense that Despite what's being said here in Washington, where I live, almost no one on Wall Street was of the belief that Biden and McCarthy would let uh, the deadline come and go without a deal being uh, done. And the markets have pretty much shown that, right, at least coming into this week. Uh, if the markets really thought a default was possible, we'd see the shorter part of the Treasury curve uh, start to have jitters. But yields on short-term Treasuries have been steadily coming down over the past few days. And so I think, you know, you'd see a sell-off in risk assets, right, namely growth uh, stocks like tech and healthcare, but tech has been on a tear uh, and hasn't been uh, worried about Biden and McCarthy uh, ultimately getting to a deal. And so, yes, I know we still have procedural votes and we have to get past uh, the Senate, as, as uh, McConnell was saying, but I think the market has pretty much spoken uh, and decided that it doesn't expect that any sort of uh, default is going to happen here. Well, you know, listen, Senator Heitkamp, Heidi, it's, it, this, is, this is not a done deal, is it? I mean, it's going to be close either way. You know, I don't think it's going to be as close in the Senate as what you think. McConnell has long been a champion of getting rid of this fake crisis that we have every time we raise the debt limit. And when you look at it, 
timing is always a problem because one person can really mess up the process. And so the mo they're going to filibuster the motion to proceed. They're going to filibuster all the way. But still, there is enough time on the Senate calendar to get this passed before, theoretically, the debt limit is reached. And so I, I think it's a matter of do they want to go home on Thursday or do they want to go home on Saturday? It, this is going to pass the Senate. And I predict it's going to pass the Senate with well over 60 votes. You know, but it's so clear, Governor, that this is, you know, when you this is first off, it's not I know the media, most of it referring to the debt ceiling deal. It's actually a bill. It's actually a potential law called the Fiscal Responsibility Act. It's 99 pages and it's filled with all kinds of stuff. I read it over the weekend. It's got environmental permitting reform changes. Joe Manchin gets his Mountain Valley pipeline, student loans. They start to get repaid. The IRS, the planned funding increase that gets pulled back just a bit. Why is why are all those things in a debt ceiling bill? Well, they were they were all priorities for different you know, parts of both of particularly of the Republican Party. And so in order to get this through, in order to get some agreement that you're going to get a bulk of Republicans because you had, I, I don't know, like 30 or so that voted no. You have something in there that that really was appealing. Now, look, I mean, I want to be clear about this. You know, I was there in 97. I was chairman of the budget committee. We balanced the budget. We had three years worth of budget surpluses, paid down the largest amount of the federal debt. We did affect uh, some of the entitlement programs where we are today with 31 trillion in the hole. Um, look, the public needs to understand why this is a problem. The public needs to understand the growing interest payments will begin to crowd out other programs that we really believe in. They need to understand that if we don't, if we can't get on top of this, investment is going to lag at the same time. And finally, we're going to have to deal with Social Security and Medicare, and you can't get it solved until the people of this country understand the problem. So we need to have a commission. We need to have a group of people who have credibility who are going to talk to the American people about the implications of the rising debt and the risk that we have to these entitlement programs. And if we can get moving on that and if people can understand it, then we can have something that really is a real deal, not something that really kind of just scratches the surface. Yeah, you wonder how higher taxes cannot not come, particularly in the middle class. There simply aren't enough rich people or corporations. So, Malcolm, I'm sure your phone and your emails, your texts and WhatsApps have been blowing up with your customers saying, what are we going to do in either situation, whatever. What's the longer term play here? Because I remember sitting at this desk. Well, not that this is a nice new desk in 2011 when we had the technical default, we had the downgrade, the markets went all nuts. Guess what? If you had the, the guts to invest back then, you've more than doubled your money. Well, Brian, it's, it, it's twofold, right? As the governor is saying, the things that really move the needle as far as the government is concerned uh, and spending cuts are concerned, it's the third rail items like Social Security and Medicare, which are pretty much uh, off the table, right? But they would have a meaningful impact on the economy uh, if we were to go there. So we're talking right now about non-defense discretionary spending, which only represents about 15 percent of the federal budget and maybe three and a half percent of total GDP, right? So I won't speak to the potential uh, political consequences there, but I would say I can confidently mm. uh, tell you that that's not going to shake the markets yep. enough, uh, it, whether we do get that kind of stuff into that bill or not. And, and that's fair enough. Hi, Senator Heitkamp, very quickly, I've got to ask you this, because I know we always hear that we're only dealing with a couple percent. What are you going to do? And if you bring up it, it's like you want to push grandmother, you know, down the hill in a, in a, in a wheelchair, whatever it may be. Why don't we ever talk about cleaning up 
the waste and fraud. How about that? As opposed to, quote, cutting a program, how about making sure $100 billion a year estimated doesn't go yeah. to identity fraudsters or Russian hackers? How about just cleaning up the it, house it, so they don't have to cut veterans' uh, programs? I'm telling you, amen. Uh, We have two great agencies. We have an inspector general corps and we have the general accounting office that every year releases reports saying, here's things that aren't working. We need to have a system where they actually have to respond to those reports. We know where this waste, fraud and abuse is. It won't solve the entire problem, but every dollar we spend has to be spent wisely and fairly to build confidence for the American taxpayer. And that's not happening right now. You're absolutely right, Brian. We need to listen to our experts who tell us where that waste, fraud and abuse is and do the things that we need to do to to reduce the deficit that way. Governor John Kasich, uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, Malcolm Etheridge, great opening panel. Really appreciate it. That vote again coming, folks, maybe in less than 90 minutes. All right. Well, your money may have taken a little bit of a hit today. The major averages all fell, though they are all higher over the past month, even heading in to this debt ceiling vote. The biggest moneymaker of the day was Intel. Yeah, you heard me right. Intel, hard to believe given recent trends, but it was the best performer in the S&P. The biggest loser, Advance Auto Parts. That is not a misprint. It wiped out one third of investor value, down 35%. Earnings weren't what people hoped. They cut their dividend and they cut their outlook. Let's take a quick look at the futures. See how things may be shaping up and it is decidedly a mixed trade. All right, straight ahead. Is the hype train over one big AI player? The name and the news ahead. Plus, breaking developments on what Jamie Dimon said under oath about his bank's ties to Jeffrey Epstein. Stay with us. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. First up, electric car maker Lucid Motors raising $3 billion. About $1.8 billion of that will be coming from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. The Saudis already own about 60% of the non-oil car. Lucid says the money will be used for capital expenditures and working capital. Still not helping that stock much after hours. It is down. Speaking of electric cars, Tesla king Elon Musk is once again the richest person in the world. He is back above luxury goods magnate Bernard Arnault. And according to Bloomberg, 
Musk's fortune now estimated at about $192 billion, the gain largely thanks to a rally in Tesla this year. Arnode held the world's richest title since December. And this is, dare we say, random but interesting. We did a little math because, you know, science. At a net worth of $192 billion, Elon Musk could spend $52 million per day, every day, for 10 years, and still not be out of money. $52 million every day for 10 years, 3,650 days, and still have money left over. Remember Brewster's millions? Doesn't that seem so quaint? And finally, caught a record scratch for the AI hype party. C3 AI reporting results after hours, delivering a disappointing outlook on revenue. That stands in contrast to many other AI players like Marvell Technology and NVIDIA, both increasing their forecasts last week thanks to booming demand. By the way, C3 AI shares, they are down big after hours. They're down 20%. And what's interesting is that stock plunge began before the company released its earnings. Hmm. All this said, C3 AI shares still up a cool 250% this year. All right, so let's stay on the hot topic of the year, that is artificial intelligence. The number of businesses that are trying to convince you that they are an AI play is soaring. Now, some companies obviously are true AI players, but others may be looking to kind of hop on the bandwagon to get a little extra juice and market mojo. So here on Last Call, we built a very real new segment. We're calling this Yay or Nay, spelled Y-A-I or N-A-I. If you're listening on the radio, get it. So we determine whether or not some of the big companies out there are truly can classify themselves as an AI business. And who better to do that with than our very good and very real friend, Herb Greenberg. All right, Herb, we're going to start big and we're going to look at Microsoft, obviously, touting major investments over the past year, right? Chat GPT, they're in it, have a huge stake in it. But is Microsoft still a true AI company? I, I don't know that any company is a true AI company. I would say Microsoft is a very good AI play, which is the way you have to look at these if you're going to start talking AI at this point, uh, at this phase of the cycle. And that is depending on what kind of AI we're talking about, because, you know, I have fairly strong opinions about this. The one thing about Microsoft is I'll give them this. They have been talking about and doing AI related things for many years. And they've been, you know, I like to go back and look at earnings release at, at, at transcripts, at SEC filings. How much have they talked about artificial intelligence? Did it just happen yesterday? No, I, Microsoft been talking about it a long time. OK, let's move on. Next up, the one we just talked about it. And that is Marvell Technologies, not Marvel, not the superhero company owned by Disney. This is a semiconductor company. They're a chip maker that saw huge gains over the past week after they boosted outlook on AI investments. But again, a semiconductor company, yay or nay I? Nay, right, right, <laughs> nay, right, yeah. right in the coattails, right, right in the coattails. I mean, if you go back and look at earnings, this is one. You'll go back and look at transcripts. They mentioned it 97 times in this last earnings call. 27 times on the prior earnings call, one time on the earnings call before that. Suddenly, you know, NVIDIA is out there, is a huge competitor. And when you look at a lot of these companies, a theme you'll hear me say is, how much money will these companies actually be making from AI? I think that's an important concept here because anyone can say they're 
doing it. But then I come back and say, what is the it? You know, many companies have a play on AI. Does that make them an AI company? I would say no. Certainly not until they prove it. All right. Well, last but not least, this is cloud computing company Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Now, they have spoken openly about how they've invested in AI, saying on their website that it is, quote, pioneering a new frontier of AI by harnessing data and gaining insights at the edge. I have no idea what that means, but I'll bite. So Herb Greenberg, HP Enterprise, AI or go AI? Well, I have to say right now, AI, at least from the perspective of are they making money with it? Because if you go to their if you go to their to their financial statements last quarter, they made zero money in the AI segment, which is part of a broader segment. In other words, they've been playing in this. They've been mentioning AI a little bit going back a few quarters, but it's part of what they do. And that's the problem here is people are forgetting what is an AI company? You know, we know what NVIDIA does. You can classify them as one because they are deep into it. I heard Mark Benioff talking to Jim Cramer uh, in Man Money earlier, and he made a strong case that AI here, AI there. And I think Mark is fantastic, except I look back and saw, when has he really been talking about AI prior to this period of time? Now, everybody says, oh, it doesn't matter. This is a jumping off point. This is a transformation. And maybe it is, Brian. I've been around long enough to know I'm not the guy who's going to sit here and say this stuff is real because it is real. But it's been real for a long time. And if you go back even to 2019, you'd see companies. Is it an AI company or isn't it an AI company? We're going to is have it a this dot discussion. Com? Is it a dot is com? It a dot, is it a block? Is it, is it what was it called? Uh, long Island blockchain, which had been Long Island yes. iced tea. And here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. I go into my local Kroger. The minute I walk in that store, I look at my app. They know I'm there and they know what I might want to spend. And they they know me. Now, that's using AI. So here's a question for you. At my Ralph's, which is owned by Kroger, is that an AI play? Every It's sort of like the Internet. Everything became an, a, an Internet company, a dot-com company. Everything is, this is just Wall Street at yeah. its best. In the end, the companies have to sort of parse themselves out. People will determine, is it really AI we're talking about? We're talking about good businesses that are either going to be driven by AI or going to use AI, as many have been doing for many years to this point. You know, Herb, I'm not impressed. I, you, you had me because I don't need AI to know what you're buying at Kroger. You got Right Guard, a bag of Fritos <laughs> and a mango, truly hard seltzer. I know exactly what you're going to get. And by the way, it's need, easy. Need it's I easy. remind you, you can't spell either of my names, first or last, without the letters AI. So let's flip it. You're From the man. now on, you need to refer to me as Brain Sullivan. Herb Greenberg, thank you, my man. My Amazing foot. how much mail I get that says Brain. I'm actually honored. All right, on deck. Buying a home in California? If so, getting insurance may have just gotten a lot harder and more expensive. Why the state's biggest player is telling new customers to forget about it. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.
All right, welcome back. It is time now for your last call watch list. And why don't we hit sort of a macro thing, right? Recent retail woes and some real concern about you, the consumer. A number of big store stocks got hit today, but it's not just a one-day wonder. Take a look at this. In the past month, a mall's worth of stores and stocks went on sale. These are one-month returns. Big lots, it's down 44%. Foot Locker shares, down 40. American Eagle, down 22. Ulta, 23. Target, Coles, and Macy's, all down 17% in one month. One big worry may be that student loan debt payments will start to have to be repaid later this summer if the current iteration of that debt ceiling bill passes. Those loans have a median payment of $222 per month per borrower, an average payment, which is always worse, but that's the average, of $393. That could take a big bite out of consumer spending for millions of people. Mm. Also on the watch list, NVIDIA shares down today. Listen to this. NVIDIA has now lost over $100 billion in market cap since yesterday afternoon. The hot streak definitely cooling off. And finally, the never-ending target of the culture war, Anheuser-Busch, shares the beer giant slumping further today, leading to the company's worst month since the beginning of the pandemic. And Budweiser's value, InBev, is now down more than $23 billion since early April. We've seen people posting videos of a $24 pack of Bud Light on a store shelf with a $20 rebate. All right. Listen up, potential California home buyers. State Farm, that is the state's largest insurer, will stop writing new homeowner policies in the state. Now, most of the headlines on the news put it all or mostly down to climate change risk. But like many things, it's just not that simple. State Farm actually released a statement saying the decision to bail in California was for three reasons. Number one, historic increases in construction costs outpacing inflation. Rapidly growing catastrophe exposure, there you go, and a challenging reinsurance market. In other words, kind of a toxic combination of all factors. So what does this mean for the state with us hitting the more environmental side of the insurance story? Scripps Institution of Oceanography Research economist Tom Coringham and Insurance Information Institute CEO Sean Kevlin. All right, Sean, first off to you. Uh, every story, and with all due respect to my fellows in the media, every story had a picture of a burning house and said climate change. It's obviously a part of it, but is that the only reason State Farm is withdrawing from new policies in California? Yeah. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Climate risk is increasing. I mean, the industry overall has seen its loss costs increase since the 80s, about 700 percent related to natural catastrophes. But I think to your point, we've got inflationary pressures. If you look at inflation year over three years, right, which is uh, pre-COVID, you're seeing the likes of homeowner replacement costs increasing 55%. The industry average overall has increased 40% overall. But I would also chalk up California an anomaly to the policymaking side of things. You know, back in the 80s, they passed some policies that created a bit of an anomaly for the state where you can't do predictive modeling I know you were talking about AI earlier, but no predictive modeling for natural catastrophes is allowed in pricing insurance. You're not allowed to factor in the reinsurance costs. And then you're also restricted on the rate increases. And when we talk about those first two things, inflation, as well as climate risk increase, you need to price the rate accordingly, the risk accordingly. And you're just not able to get that in an actuarially sound way in California. 
And as a result, you have seen some insurers having to withdraw from the state, at least for now. You know, Tom, growing up in Southern California, actually not, not too far from where you're probably seated, there was a bunch of hills behind our house. And every year or two, there would be a fairly sizable fire, a lot of manzanita-type stuff, no, no trees, whatever. But there would be fire because climate change was back then as it is now. Now it's filled with homes. And you have to wonder why some of these communities do appear to be building into areas which are historically, provably at greater risk from things like heat, lightning, and drought. Sure, and this is one of the, the big challenges that we face is the, the growing wildland-urban interface or wildland-urban intermix. Um, and it's one of the proposed solutions is to crack down on uh, new development in this area. Um, and uh, as you say, uh, here in San Diego in 2003, 2007, we had catastrophic wildfires in the, in the chaparral, in the, in the wildlands. Uh, for California as a whole, uh, 2017, 2018, we're just off the charts, 2020, just terrible fire years. And uh, something has got to give in the insurance market, something has got to give in terms of policy uh, surrounding wildfire. Yeah, Tom, I mean, or, or Sean, rather, what's got to give to Tom's point? I mean, listen, and again, climate change is real. It's a threat. Wildfires are accelerating. Droughts accelerating as well. But at the same time, at the same time, we've got terrible forestry management. Everybody wants beautiful old trees. They get dry. They become a tinderbox. The power lines, the utilities are not upgraded. They're 75 years old. They break. They light the trees. Are there any real world things that we can do in the nearer term to help out, not just California, but other states dealing with this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I do think it comes down to a collective responsibility because the insurance rate is the effect and not the cause. And I think even the anecdotes you said growing up where we're developing more and more in harm's way. Southern California right now is the second largest or most growing population in the United States. Florida and Texas are the other two. These are areas that are very catastrophe prone. And so we need to think about resilience. We need to think about risk mitigation. Insurance is a risk transfer tool, but it can only go so far if we're not managing the risk. And I think that's where we got to talk about development. That's where we got to talk about good public policy. That's where we got to talk about incentives that create behavioral changes, whether it's through the tax system mm. or other areas that we need to recognize that we need to be more resilient as a community and create a collective responsibility to this problem so that we can ensure. Insurers want to be in these growing populations. They want to do business there. Well, they, but if they can't make the, the, a responsible underwriting profit, then it just doesn't make sense. Well, the, to be fair, Sean, and I mean this respectfully, i got a lot of friends in the insurance business. They also want to make money, as companies do. And people left Florida with all the storms, and the state had to kind of come in and create it. Uh, Tom, as a sort of a climate-focused economist, are there one or two things practical, I'm not going to say easy because nothing is easy, but practical things that we can do to make it a little less risky? Sure. I think uh, a couple of things. The, the fuel management uh, regime of the last century has created uh, a lot of the problems with the increasing fuel density. So uh, rationalizing that policy, uh, allowing for more uh, thinning of the, of the wildlands and prescribed burns is, is one solution. Uh, building fire breaks around communities, building fire smart communities, uh, providing subsidies for folks to 
put in new roof roofing, for example, or clear clear defensible space around their properties. I think, as you say, there's, there's no silver bullet, but there are a lot of small things that we can do um, for for flood in, in the Gulf Coast and in the Atlantic seaboard. Uh, part of it, we can fortify in place, we can uh, elevate properties, but ultimately with sea level rise and increasing intensity of these storms, mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to think of some long-term adaptation strategies, uh, and uh, that's going to be the challenge. Yeah, and having recently been in the Netherlands, an entire nation that's under sea level, they've kind of provided some of those models, at least on the coast as well. Tom and Sean, a good discussion. See what happens in California, guys. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, on deck, the House floor now open for debate on the Fiscal Responsibility Act. That's the actual name of the bill. You know it as the debt ceiling deal. We're going to speak with one Republican that is going to vote no. Next. Welcome back. We are less than an hour away for the critical House vote on the debt ceiling deal. Right now, lawmakers are debating the bill that would raise the $31.4 trillion debt limit, basically wipe out the debt limit until 2025. But it would also do things like speed up energy permitting and force a restart of student loan debt payments. Kayla Tavshi is back with us now. We can see, uh, you know, getting some pretty passionate talk already on the floor. Can you hear what's going on? What's being said, Kayla? Well, Brian, each party is going to have 30 minutes to make their case. They'll have members come forward and debate this. So starting with 30 minutes for the Democrats and then 30 minutes for Republicans, they'll go back and forth. We just heard from Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries just a few minutes ago. And essentially, this will bring you up to an 8.30 p.m. time period where there will be a vote taken for the Fiscal Responsibility Act, as it's being called. And by and large, this is expected to pass. Um, Earlier today, a procedural hurdle that would allow this vote to even be taken passed 241 to 187. That was a very clear indication that there would be support for the deal itself. And then House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is planning a press conference this evening at 9.15 p.m., expected to be a victory lap after the passage of the bill. There have been many Republicans who have been vocal about their no votes, the Freedom Caucus, several dozen of those members talking about how this essentially just does not do enough to stabilize spending levels and to bring down the national debt, to bring down the deficit. And they want to take a stand against that. The party that's been less vocal about the no votes is the Democrats, because President Biden negotiated this personally, as did deputies um, that he delegated from his administration. And we've had a couple progressives, Pramila Jayapal and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, say that they will be voting no, but there haven't been that many. So how the D count comes in, I think, will be very telling uh, as far as how successful the White House has been in messaging this and in getting their own party on board. And then, of course, we move on to the Senate. We talked about that a little bit earlier this hour. There could be some hiccups in terms of actually getting that vote uh, to happen. It could take a couple days if there is real opposition that emerges from some of those senators. Uh, We will see whether uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell can get a couple of those uh, to yield back their time to just go ahead and do this unanimously in the Senate so they can close things out by the end of the week. That remains to be seen. That's going to, of course, be on the docket for tomorrow. But we are expecting this bill, Brian, to pass in just about an hour's time after many lawmakers have had their say. Yeah. Can't quite hear it, but there's a lot of gesticulating at a whiteboard with red and blue lines going on. We'll figure it out. The vote coming up. Kayla Tausche, thank you.
All right, for more on this, let's bring in Republican Congresswoman of South Carolina, Nancy Mace. Congresswoman Mace, thank you for joining us. I know you're probably going to get in the chamber as well. How are you going to vote? Oh, I'm absolutely voting against this measure tonight at 8.30 when it comes to the floor. Why? Well, this bill doesn't do what the American people have told it's done. There's no limit to the debt ceiling. This signs into law, will sign into law, uh, record levels of spending. We, we were spending $6 trillion a year during COVID, during an emergency spending time period. We're putting into law that future spending will be at the same levels as it was during COVID. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, we are expanding the welfare state. We're growing welfare with this bill. And that's not something that the American people want. The American people wanted spending cuts for a debt ceiling hike. And that's not what they're getting tonight. You know, I, Congresswoman, with all due respect, do people want spending cuts? I think people will say they want spending cuts. Doesn't matter what party you're in. If you're getting a stimulus check or you're getting your taxes reduced or whatever, it's hard to rescind those. Right. So I, I do wonder how many well, people it, it actually sure is, which is why they want the spending he, cut. But do they want what comes well, along with the spending cut? I don't know. Well, if you look at the data nationwide, Republicans overwhelmingly wanted spending cuts. Independents overwhelmingly wanting spending cuts. Democrats, 45 percent of Democrats wanted spending cuts for a debt ceiling hike. That's not what they're getting. They're actually we're actually going to add about four trillion dollars to the debt just over the next two years. And so inflation's going to go up there. It's going to be hugely problematic. And in two years, we don't know who's going to be in power. We don't know who's going to be in charge. We don't know who's going to be president or who's going to have the majority in the House or the Senate. So a lot of things can change between now and then. We really ought to have had more responsible, more responsible measures to cut back spending. And that's not what we're getting tonight. It's a shell game with taxpayer dollars. I'm not really interested in supporting it at all. And we'll see what happens in the Senate. Well, we've been told, Congresswoman Mace, I mean, the threats have been pretty dire. Um, millions of jobs lost, stock market tanks, veterans benefits cut if we don't get a deal. Sounds like you don't believe that's just some of the more dire, yeah, no, dire that's, warnings. No, that's not going to happen. No. Why not? Those are just, you know, def defaults not on the table. Um, that is just a scare tactic by the left. Uh, Janet Yellen, the original date for default was in July. She moved it up to June. She moved it back a few days when debt ceiling negotiations were taking longer than estimated. I'm sure she can find buckets of money to push the date back further next week if the Senate doesn't finish the job. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, this thing doesn't do what the American people have been told that it does by folks up here in D.C. It's D.C. math. Um, you can literally have one person in the federal government, the director of OMB, get around these spending caps. Um, you know, it's not worth the paper that it's printed on, which is why the American people, I don't believe, would support it if they read the bill and knew what was in it. Do you expect it to pass, though? Even though you're voting no, do you think it will pass? I do think it will pass. I, I think that, that the leadership will have to get Democrat votes to carry it across the finish line, and that's what will happen tonight in about an hour and then the Senate will take it up. There are amendments that certain senators would like to make on the bill. I think if you could just make a few small adjustments to make it more responsible, then I think it's something that more people could support. But at this juncture, they didn't even allow mm -hmm. any amendments on the bill when it came to the floor today. I have absolutely no power to do this, but I just told, talked to my executive, but I'm going to do it anyway. We're going to bring the show to South Carolina. I'll okay. tell you why. You're, you guys have a budget surplus, surplus of three and a half Mm -hmm. Billion dollars. You got a couple people I'm told down there that may or may not be running for for president. I was down there during COVID. Things were pretty much open. The kids were in schools and the numbers are pretty much the same as most other places. 
What, is there a South Carolina Palmetto State secret that's going on down there? Because $3.5 billion budget surplus when a lot of states now have gigantic deficits. Well, the state of South Carolina balances its budget every single year. And not only that, but this year we cut state income taxes from 7 down to 5%. I would love to see it at zero at some point in the future. But we've done a really good job uh, con- fiscally conservatively managing the state's budget, living within our means. And I'm a single mom with two teenage kids. I want to teach my kids how to live within their means and not spend more money than they have. Yep. And that's what the state of South Carolina under Governor Henry McMaster, his leadership, that's what they're doing. So if we bring the show down your way, will you come on in person? Because I'm thinking a great location could be Sullivan's Island. I just find the name very catchy. (laughs) Right on the water. We'll do it on the beach or near the water with beautiful views. I've got lots of places. Shem Creek, Sullivan's Island, Isle Palms, downtown Charleston. We can go anywhere. We've done it it from the Port of Charleston run by a great guy there. Maybe at Hall's Chop House. We'll figure it out. Congresswoman Nancy Mace. Uh, Thank you. My favorite place. Appreciate it very much. I I just guessed. Got it right. All right, coming up. Breaking details on Jamie Dimon's deposition, and they include some eyebrow-raising comments from the CEO. Stick around. All right, welcome back. We are learning some breaking details from Jamie Dimon's deposition last week. Joining us now with more is Eamon Javers in D.C. Eamon, what did we learn? Well, Brian, the deposition of Jamie Dimon shows a Wall Street titan on the defensive as attorneys for the plaintiffs try to pin down his role, whatever it may have been, in handling sex offender Jeffrey Epstein's accounts at the bank. Time and time again, throughout the seven hours of testimony, Dimon says he was not involved in decisions about Epstein's accounts at the bank and was unaware of debate among lower-ranking employees about whether Epstein should be allowed to continue to be a client of J.P. Morgan. Diamond testifies that he was not the one responsible for kicking Epstein out of the bank. That responsibility, he said, would have fallen to Stephen Cutler, who was then general counsel of J.P. Morgan. But attorneys produced an email from Cutler back in 2011 saying Epstein should be gone. Cutler writes, this is not an honorable person in any way. He should not be a client. So, Brian, it's not clear how, if Cutler had the ultimate authority to remove Epstein from the bank, and Cutler said he should not be a client, that Epstein still remained at the bank for years after that email was sent. We're also getting a look at what employees at the bank knew of Epstein's interest in much younger women at the time. At one point, Staley emails J.P. Morgan executive Mary Erdos this. This is from Jess Staley, high-ranking executive at the bank. Last night, went to the Huggy Bear concert. The age difference between husbands and wives would have fit in well with Jeffrey. What a joke. And we learned from plaintiff's attorneys that Epstein was promoting Diamond to his powerful and wealthy friends as a potential candidate for Treasury Secretary. Diamond says he was unaware of that, too. Now, the Wall Street Journal reported this morning that it has documents showing that Jess Staley, the former high-ranking executive at J.P. Morgan, says he spoke to Diamond several times about Epstein. J.P. Morgan denies that, and Diamond, in this transcript that's out tonight, says again and again that officials didn't bring Epstein to his attention. Brian, back over to you. So cutting between the lines and cutting to the chase, Eamon, it does appear that Jess Staley and Jamie Dimon either have very different memories, very different views, or are directly contradicting each other. Absolutely. One, one of them is not telling the truth, right? And it depends on who you believe here. I mean, uh, if, you, if you take J.P. Morgan's line in this argument, you know, they will tell you, look, I mean, here's Jamie Dimon under oath testifying in front of the attorneys for the, 
for the plaintiffs, laying it all out, saying time and time again, never met Epstein, didn't have anything to do with reviewing his accounts, wasn't involved in this decision. Then we have a report from the Wall Street Journal based on documents that we haven't seen yet, uh, which suggests that Jess Staley has said, uh, in what context it's not clear, that in mm. fact he did brief uh, Jamie Dimon on Jeffrey Epstein. So mm. those two accounts don't square, and one of them has to be wrong. Not at all. Yeah, wrong or something else, to your point. Eamon Javers, thank you. All right, coming up, Nevada's casinos are making it harder to go home happy, and that is where Contessa Brewer is standing by. Contessa. But are you, I mean, are you really going to leave the casino unhappy? I don't know. I saw a lot of smiles coming out of here today. We'll tell you why, though. Is there a, could it be a conspiracy to actually have the House win even more? I'm back with that right after this. All right, welcome back. Well, Wall Street may be worrying about a looming recession. It's boom times in Nevada. A state reporting its best April ever for gaming revenue, more than a billion bucks coming in last month. And that makes it the 26th month in a row. It's more than two years that the billion-dollar mark got beat. But here's a little bit of a devious question. Are casinos helping to help themselves with winning hands? Contessa Brewer joining us now from Reno, the biggest small town in the world and the home of your first TV gig to explain. That's right. Full circle here. The headline here, Brian, is that the House is more likely to win when the odds are tweaked even more in its favor. But this isn't new. About five years ago, roulette tables in Vegas started sporting triple zero versus the traditional double zero. On the roulette table, that shifts the odds by slightly more than 2% in the House's favor. Hit a blackjack, the dealer might now pay out six to five instead of three to two. Again, basically a shift of about 2%. An experienced Las Vegas gambler told me today the shifting odds are prevalent in Las Vegas. But he says, look, recreational players don't care. And those who do can head to high limit rooms that offer single zero roulette. That's also called European roulette. And the headlines might lead you to believe that these changing odds weed out budget conscious players, but it's much more likely to be the higher table minimums. I mean, last time I played roulette at the win, it was a $50 minimum. Win does not cater to a budget conscious crowd. Lots of other Nevada casinos do, though. And others found out during the pandemic with fewer players because of social distancing, casinos needed to focus on the highest value players. And then, of course, what we saw is demand came roaring back. Casinos are full. The restaurants are full. Hotels are charging record room rates. Derek Stevens, who owns four downtown Vegas casinos, told me that visitors are coming for entertainment and now they're spending more than ever before. Caesars CEO Tom Reig said on his recent earnings call that the entertainment has shifted, that Adele has a residency, F1 is coming, they're offering million-dollar packages on, on up and down the Strip, and the Golden Knights are vying for the Stanley Cup. I was told today that I had to mention that. Conferences, of course, are back, Brian, and those attendees are more valuable than even weekend gamblers. All of that is what's displacing the low-end customer demographic. By the way, record-setting numbers for gaming revenue, despite visitation, still being slightly lower in Las Vegas than in 2019. It's like right? almost almost every state's got a casino of some kind now, and yet people want to go to Vegas, baby, Vegas. Or Reno. But again, because of the or entertainment Fallon. options, right? There's the Fallon. My grandparents the used to live show, there. I think is True what story. happens. In, 
Oh, really? That's the only reason I know yeah, it. Did, well, you have a tie to like every city across the whole nation, You're don't learning. You? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just that Las Vegas still offer, offers a plethora of entertainment options, and there's something for everybody. You got kids, there's something for them. If you've got money, there's something for you. If you're a sports fan, there's something for you. That segmentation in terms of what's on offer, if you want low minimums on the tables, you can find that in Las Vegas and elsewhere too, of course. I just went in here. They have roulette tables with double zeros. Double zeros, not European. Maybe go to Fallon. Check it out. Contessa Brewer. Great. Higher limits, I guess. There you go. Or Laughlin. Great stuff. All right, before we go, a quick update on the debt drama in D.C. We are now just about 30 minutes away from the final House vote on that debt ceiling bill. It's officially called the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Debate is underway, and you can see House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is now taking the floor as well to make his pitch. We've heard from some folks who have said they're going to vote no, but overall, that bill still is expected to pass. Again, in about an hour's time, we should know whether or not that Fiscal Responsibility Act, the debt ceiling deal, whatever you want to call it, is passed, and we don't have to deal with this again until 2025. All right, thanks, everybody, for watching. You don't got to go home, but you can't stay here. We'll see you tomorrow night. Shark Tank is next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.